right, we are, at, we are in uh, Luke chapter 10 tonight. Band, uh, thank you. Actually, everyone, thank you. This is, everything we do here is such a family effort. And um, during the summer, with everyone coming and going, we always have to be calling people, hey, can you sit in the band? Hey, can you help out with kids? Can you? And people always say yes, and we are so appreciative of the band. Thank you so much for leading us uh, tonight. Um, and uh, we are in uh, one of my favorite stories uh, in, in the Bible, one that most people are familiar with. Um, and what I want to do tonight is just read it one more time. We're going to go through we're in chapter uh, 10 of the Gospel of Luke, verses 25 through 37. And although we have heard this many times, I hope that we can begin to hear it in some new ways tonight. Uh, and yes, I am trying bifocals tonight. I've been having a battle with glasses for the last few weeks, trying to figure out how to see and not fall over. And I think this one might work. I think these might actually be the ticket, is the $1 bifocals, uh, you know, off the counter in Walgreens or something, as opposed to whatever I... Didn't, don't want to tell you how much I paid for before. Anyways, I'm not bitter. Let's go. Luke 10, uh, 25 through 37 says this. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Some of, you, some of your Bibles may say a lawyer. Uh, that means an expert in the Torah. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And I love this turn in the story. We get a little help from the narrator here to know the guy's heart. He's trying to vindicate himself, and he does what... Um, I don't know if your children, my children learned this very early on, which is the best way to avoid having to actually do what I'm told is to keep asking questions. Do this and you'll be saved. Great. Let me, let me ask some follow-up questions on that before we get to all that doing that stuff. Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and took off, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave to the innkeeper, gave to the innkeeper and said, "Take care of him and when I come back I will pay, repay you whatever more you spend." Which of these 3 do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, "The one who showed him mercy." Jesus said to him, "Go and do likewise." No problem with a story like this, of course, is familiarity. This is a story we all know. In fact, just in the wider culture, the term Good Samaritan is used often. We all know this story. And most of you probably know why this story was so scandalous, right? Samaritans. Samaritans are the bad guys for the Jews. Religiously, they are unorthodox. They don't believe the correct things. Ethnically, they are considered mixed, kind of impure ethnically. Politically, they are foreign. They are the bad guys. Samaritan might be what you call someone else out and name them if you're angry at them as a good Jew in these days. 
In fact, Samaritans are so disliked, you'll notice that what happens at the end of the story is when, uh, when Jesus asked the, the, uh, the lawyer which of these three uh, was the neighbor of the man who fell in the hands of the robbers, notice he doesn't even, can't even get himself to say the word Samaritan there. It's the one, the one who showed him mercy. And this story is built like a good story or a good joke would be built, which is the first two people pass by and they're the expected heroes. They're the good Jewish folks. They're the ones who should be doing the right thing and they don't do it. And the second one doesn't do it. And the third one comes and everyone's holding their breath and they're waiting for it. Who is the third one? Is it a child? Is it an angel? Is it God, God's self? What's going on here? And when Jesus says the word Samaritan, you would have probably heard an audible gasp among the crowd. This would be like me getting up here tonight and telling a heroic story about the grand wizard of the clan. It wouldn't be a popular story to tell. In fact, years ago, I think, when we were doing this, if I remember correctly, I made up a story about um, how there was all these schools being built in, in Afghanistan, and at the end I talked about what a great job the Taliban was doing. And it was a made-up story. I, I, it wasn't real. Um, and you could feel people getting angry in the room. Uh, I don't have enough guts to do that again. But, uh, plus I did it once, you know, kind of ruins it. But, I mean, it's, it's going to be that kind of thing. It's a heroic story about whoever you like the least. It's another example of Christ refusing to allow us to even have enemies, to have scapegoats in this world, Right? People are people, capable of good and bad things at any time. No one person, no one group of people get to be the problem. We are all the problem and the solution to one degree or another. And while the audience is hoping that this story will help them identify with the Savior in the story, in the end, they are really more identified with the people who do the wrong thing or the guy in the ditch. They don't have connection to the hero here. This is probably what any good ethical teaching will prod you to do, right? To begin to make your decisions about how one should behave based on what you would hope someone would do if you were the one in the ditch. Because eventually, we're all in the ditch. Hence the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's brilliant storytelling. It's a foundational and formational teaching of Christ. And like most of Jesus' teachings, it never actually answers the question that was asked. You can count on one hand the amount of times where Jesus just directly answers a question that someone asks. He doesn't like to do it. Again, not unlike my children, but for a totally different reason. Who is my neighbor? Is a question that is essentially ignored by Jesus. He answers it with a story that has nothing to do with who is my neighbor in many ways. And that's what I want to spend a little bit of time on tonight, because that's the thing that stood out and I never really thought about in the story I've read a thousand times this week. A thousand times in my life, and I read it again this week. I didn't read it a thousand times this week. I'm not that good at preparing sermons, I promise. So again, let's consider this lawyer a little more for a second. What we know is that he would have been an expert in law, and by law we mean the Torah, the first five books, he probably would have much of it memorized, he would have known it backwards and forwards, meaning he had all the right theological answers. He knows the books very well. When Jesus tees up one of the easiest of all questions for a teacher of the law about what are you supposed to do, he's going to spit back what's called the Shema. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. He adds mind here. He's going to hit it out of the park. It's on the tee. There's no doubt about this one. He's got it. Why even ask the question, right? So we know he knows his stuff. He knows the right answer. The second thing we know about him is that he is asking not because he wants to know the right answer. He's asking because he wants to vindicate, or maybe your translation says justify himself. He wants to justify himself. He knew the right answers, but he needed more than that. He wanted more than that, as we all so often do. He wanted to be vindicated. He wanted Christ to show him, and just so happens the crowd around, how good he was, how close he was to God, how right and righteous he was. He wanted confirmation of his status before God and man. Jesus is just there to make him feel better and look better to everyone else. And it's at this point where I would love to give the rest of the sermon as a fiery uh, condemnation of this lawyer. I'd love to judge the lawyer here, but the truth is I can definitely relate to this impulse, and I think a lot of us can. How often in our religious lives do we look for Jesus to ensure our own rightness, our own standing before God and man? In fact, I could argue that there's entire theological systems built around this impulse, right? I spent a lot of time talking about the kind of Christianity I grew up with, and I apologize for doing that. It's just my history. It's all I know how to kind of relate it to. But I grew up in church, grew up in Christian schools. I was in like Sunday school or Bible class six out of seven days a week. I was in chapel or church multiple times a week. I heard a lot of sermons, all those kind of things. And there was one question that was asked more than any other. And that one question that was asked all the time was, if you died tonight, heaven or hell? Some version of that, right? If you got on your bike to ride home from school today, young Mike Dixon, what every fifth grader should be thinking about, and a truck runs the red light, heaven or hell, where where are you standing? Where is your standing with God? In other words, are you in close relation to God or far away? How close or how far are you? Are you justified or not? Are you vindicated or not? The entire premise of half the talks that I heard were about trying to make sure of my own safety and my own justification. And we mostly used our religious practice as a constant means of clarifying that standing. And we were nervous about it. I was nervous about it. And it showed in the way I related to God, in the way I related to my faith, in the way I talked to other people, particularly the unjustified, the unwashed masses out there. I always wanted to know where I was in relation, and I always wanted to make sure I was in good standing. I wanted to be vindicated. And part of the fun of my vindication was everyone else's relative distance. This was so deeply ingrained in me, it took a very long time for me to kind of untangle it and begin to see it for what it was. And I know it came mostly from good intentions, I believe. But it was all about my vindication. Can anyone else relate to this? Can anyone kind of give me at least a little bit of not? Okay, not on my own. All right, good. As long as we're all unhealthy together, right? I'm not sure exactly if this is what you grew up with uh, or if you had this experience. Um, But I may have set a record at my particular school 
uh, in junior high because I think, I, I believe if my count is right, I was saved 30 times in junior high. Every time a decent speaker came to a chapel or the Bible teacher just happened to really hit the right notes at the time, I felt terrible. I began to question my standing with God, and so I shored it up. I wanted to make sure I was justified and vindicated. I got saved a lot. We weren't the aisle-walking type that I grew up in. We were more the uh, bow your head and raise your hand. And I did look a couple times, and sometimes the person at the front would go, I see that hand, and there were no hands. So <laughs> that's a preacher trick I learned early. You can pad your stats without anyone knowing about it, right? But if you, if you center your religious life on vindication in faith, and then you teach that day after day to a deeply insecure teenager like me, this is what happens. And I would spend all of my religious energy making sure I was in good standing. Every time a good youth speaker spoke, I recommitted, I raised my hand. I would do what I had to do. With no thought about whether this is a healthy relationship or not, right? Like now I know if every month Sarah came up to me and said, you know, I think we should renew our vows, I begin to wonder what was going on. And when I lived in that framework, when my framework was all about where do I stand with God, am I okay, am I on the right side of this equation, am I vindicated, am I justified, then no one else even really exists in that framework but me and God. Someone could literally be lying bloodied in the ditch next to me and I would keep walking. It's by nature a kind of narcissistic kind of faith. And I was struck this week. I was struck at the way Jesus responds to what you could argue was a very good theological question, right? I was struck this week the way he refuses to engage in the game of justification in the story. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? What are the actual rules here? Let's get into some definitions, Jesus. Where are the lines so I can stick my toes up against them? And Jesus responds to who is my neighbor with the answer to how do I neighbor? Jesus responds with who is my neighbor with the answer to how do I neighbor. He is asked about rules and orthodoxy and religion, and Christ responds with love and relationship and orthopraxy. Christ answers who with how. And I think there's something for us in there. It would appear that Christ had no interest in establishing precisely the boundaries and the rules so that we might have a means of measuring our success or relative favor so that we would know if we're justified or not. How do we love? This, this is precisely what Christ is interested in talking about. Doesn't even answer the other question. How do we love? Who is my neighbor? Is it him? Is it her? Is it them? Certainly not them. Jesus doesn't even answer the question. Of course, the answer to that question is yes. Right? How do I neighbor? How do I move and breathe and live and act in love in this world, as bloody and messy as it can be? How do I neighbor? Well, you neighbor by giving unsurpassable surpassable worth to the person before you, even if they're the person you least want to bother with, even if they're the person that will cost you the most. You walk through the world acting the way you hope others will act 
when it's your turn in the ditch. You give in a way that costs you something and that benefits the one who was bloodied. You love them as you were first loved. That's the conversation Christ wants to have. And if I could go back and change something about the first 20 years of my life, in regards to faith, there's plenty of other things I would change, but if I could change something about my life of faith in the first 20 years, and I said the prayer when I was four, uh, I grew up in church, you know, like I was always basically a, a Christian. If I could change something about those first 20 years of practicing faith, it might be this thing. I would love to go back and somehow convince myself of this. I would love to save myself the countless hours I obsessed with trying to determine where I was in relation to God. Am I okay with God or am I not? Does God love me today or does God not love me today? Am am I good? Am I bad? Am I far? Am I close? What's going on? I would save myself those countless hours I obsessed over that. Am I justified? Am I not? Am I vindicated? Am I not? Is God with me or is God far from me? And I would somehow embed into my younger self the truth that it took me a long time to figure out, which is that God does not work that way or does, and does not even want us obsessing about that question. I would love to embed in my younger self that God's love is without condition, that God is everywhere from the tallest peaks of my life to the deepest valleys of my life, from the brightest stars in my life to the darkest parts of myself that no one knows about. God is already there in every victory and in every devastating heartbreak. God is already with you. That question is answered. Stop worrying about it. God is already with you. I don't have to worry about justifying or vindicating myself. I don't have to worry about placing myself where I am in in the map of everything. My standing with God at any given moment is not the point. That is already taken care of. It makes me feel a little bit free just saying it. I wish I would have known it earlier. My standing with God at any given point, moment is not the point. And then, then maybe I would have noticed the people bleeding all around me. Maybe then I would have started to really consider how to neighbor in this world. That is what we should be talking about. That is what we should be paying attention to. How do we neighbor in this world? Because that is what's still left to be determined. And that is what Jesus seems interested in talking about. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are grateful. Grateful that the life of faith you've called us to is not an insecure life. It is not a life of constantly wondering whether we have pleased you or angered you, whether you are near or far. Thankful that you are a God who is above anything we might face, but you are a God who is with us and within us at the same time, that you are a God whose love is without condition, that there is no getting further away from you. You are with us. 
And while certainly we can do things to harm ourselves, to harm our relationships, to lessen our love in this world and make us less of who we are called to be, there is no reason to try to vindicate ourselves in this world. That question has been answered. And God, we are now free to get to the business of being good neighbors. Of giving unsurpassable worth to whoever we come into contact with. Of sacrificially loving those who are most in need. Of believing that even the ones that we would call enemies are in fact our brothers and sisters and should be treated accordingly. Lord, that is where your kingdom comes here to earth as it is in heaven. God, may we be good Samaritans. May we neighbor well in this world. Lord, we do love you. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.